0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We're not just to celebrate that we're being honest and we're all a mess. We're to move on from there and be transformed. And so being honest about our stuff is one step in that direction. The other troubling trend is that w- people will... There, there's those who did what I just said. They, they, they're honest about their stuff and they're saying, I, we know that this isn't, isn't what God wants, but we're, at least we're honest. And they just park it there. There's another theological school of thought that says that this is our situation. And so they adjust the word of God to endorse that. And neither one of those are God's will. What God wants us to do is to be honest about where we're at, but understand that that's on the way to where we're going, and that is we're to go from glory to glory, we're to be conformed to the image of his dear son. He who the son sets free is free indeed. God really does want you free. And if you're still struggling with the same things today that you were struggling with 10 years ago, there's a problem. Believe me, when you get your, your present issues settled, there'll be more on there, you know, right behind them. God graciously only shows you a little bit at a time of what you need work on. And I'm saying that to all of us. But we need to be transformed. And so we were talking about this this need to overcome. Because there's this element that we begin to make excuses for people's sinful responses to their pain. And we think that just being honest about it is that we've arrived, that this is really the end zone, that we just sit around and we're not like the world. We own our stuff. Well, we need to own our stuff, and that is one of the steps to getting over our stuff. But God really does want to deliver you. He really does want to grow you up. He wants you to be transformed. It's the difference between justification and sanctification, and we cannot reduce salvation to merely being forgiven. God wants to take us from forgiveness to freedom. He wants you to be free. He wants you to be able to walk in victory over the things that once bound you. And just being honest about what binds you isn't good enough. It's the first step and you need to do that. But it's not, that's not the end zone. We need to be honest and, and, and that's the pathway to getting there. So then we were, we were looking at the, the element of pain and sin because one of the things in this, this, this new idea of the, the authenticity as the end zone, one of the things that I hear is people using their personal pain as justification for their behavior. And that's nothing new. The fact is all of sin is flight from pain. Let me just say that emphatically. There are no exceptions. All sin, period. Any sinful action is simply you trying to flee from some uncomfortable situation in your life and give yourself momentary relief. All of sin is flight from pain. How can I say that emphatically? What do I base that on? 1 Peter chapter 4, it says, Jesus suffered in his body. You arm yourself also with the same attitude. Jesus had an attitude towards pain. That mindset, that attitude, that, that way he postured himself towards pain in his life was an armor of defense. And Paul, Peter, rather, tells us, you arm yourself also with the same attitude. If you will take the mindset that Jesus had towards pain, if you will adopt that same posture... It will become an armor of defense. And then Peter says the astounding statement, because he who suffers in his body is done with sin. The way to overcome sin is to deal in a healthy way with the sin in your life. Christianity is not a pain pill that numbs you out. It's not just another way to medicate yourself. Christianity doesn't numb our pain. It helps us resolve it. But in order to resolve it, we need to face it. And in order to face it, we need to feel it. Now, you can use Christianity as a numbing uh, medication. It's not the way God intended, and it's not going to help you. There are a lot of people that use religion as a way to escape their pain. Matter of fact, there's people that stay so busy doing Christian things so they don't have to sit and be alone and face their own issues. And that is not God's intention. Matter of fact, God loves you enough, he'll put a stop to that. He'll find some way to stop you in your tracks so that you have to face yourself. And so we need to to understand this dynamic because too often people use their ongoing pain as their own personal evidence that God hasn't delivered them. Well, you don't understand. I gave God a try and I was still hurting. As if Christianity is an instant deliverance from the pain we were once fleeing through our sinful behavior. And in reality, Christianity is the strength to face the pain and over time resolve it, to walk through the process where we learn in a healthy way to deal with the pain in our life rather than medicating it in unhealthy ways. Peter goes on in that passage to begin to name what we moderns really talk about as addictions. Sexual immorality, orgies, drunkenness, so forth. He's talking about sex addictions, alcohol addictions, chemical addictions, all these. Really, if you get into addiction studies, I, I remember years ago, I worked for Teen Challenge for about 14 years. I came out of addiction myself. And uh, one time I went to represent Teen Challenge at a drug fair at DMAC. It was a fascinating day. We weren't real welcome, I didn't feel, because those in the, uh, the drug rehabilitation industry, and it is an industry, uh, didn't really agree with our position. Our position was alcoholism, drug addiction, is not, a, is not a disease. It's a choice. It's a sin. Now, that's not to say that there aren't certain people with a propensity towards that. I'm being one of them, okay? I have a propensity to overuse Chemicals that's why I've got I to gotta be careful when it, ta- when it comes to uh, medication. I was telling the Wednesday night I taught the, the young adults Wednesday night because Christopher 's in Brazil. And so I was telling him that that day I drank about two pots of coffee. Really, my wife drank about a half a pot, and I drank a pot and a half. Just the way I roll. And I, I remember a few years ago, I went to the doctor. I had a terrible earache. I went in there, and he looked at my ear and said, Oh, my goodness, the whole inside of your head is rotted out. And I know you're thinking that explains a lot. <laughs> but he said, you, you have a terrible earache. He said, I'm going to give you some oxycodone. So I went home, and that night, the kids went to bed. Kathy went to bed. I thought, Man, my ear's hurting. I'm going to take one of those. I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. I took one of those. I'm telling you what, the glory came down. I'm serious. I had a great time with Jesus. Man, I, I was in the Word, worshiping, crying, walking around the living room. It was awesome. So the next night came. Everybody's heading to bed. and My ears hurt. And I, think, I thought, I'm going to take another one of those pills and spend some time with the Lord. And the fear of God came on me. It scared me. I'm delivered. I haven't, you know, the only drink I've had in 35 years, and I was an alcoholic that lived for the bottle. The only drink I had is I did drink some alcoholic wine in Korea last year at communion, and it didn't trigger me, because I'm delivered. But I do know this. My personality is prone to certain weaknesses like yours. Yours may be different than mine. We always want to judge other people's weaknesses and, you know. But the fact is we all have them and we need to understand that and we need to be careful of that. And what I did is I, de- I dealt with the anxiety in my life, the self-conscious, the crippling anxiety, that uncomfortable situation that was painful for me as an adolescent. I escaped it by medicating it through alcohol and drugs. And when I got saved, Jesus didn't suddenly deliver me. I, didn't, I wasn't suddenly filled with confidence. I still had my greatest fear was still speaking publicly, even one-on-one, let alone before a crowd. I was still crippling anxiety. So what did I do? I had to, I, I had to make a commitment. Jesus, if I have to, if I'm gonna sit in the corner and sweat and shake and stutter and and you know have these anxiety attacks for the rest of my life, then so be it. But I will never drink again because that came between you and I. Never realizing that when I made that commitment to face the pain. I was actually taking the first step in resolving the pain. And I was learning what most of you learned in your teen years. I had to learn in my 20s and 30s because I skipped that by medicating the stress rather than learning to cope with it like the rest of you did. The fact is a lot of people experience pain in their life and they use that as their own personal evidence before God that they're the exception to the rule. Well, you don't understand I still struggled with fill in the blank. I still struggled with same-sex attraction. I still struggled with pornography. I still struggled with alcoholism. I still struggled, so God didn't deliver me. And they, they reinterpret Christianity as a struggle-free life, and because they have the wrong concept, when it doesn't work for them, they give up on God or they redefine God and say God tells them they're the exception to the rule. And we've got to be careful of that. The fact is, facing our pain, being willing to look at those situations square in the eye and dealing with them without diving into our old medication is actually the pathway to resolution. And part of that is authenticity. We talked... A couple of weeks ago, out of First John chapter one, I want to read this again because I want I want to touch on this because this is very very important, a very important element to what we're talking about. I got to find where I'm at here. Technology, isn't it wonderful? All right, listen to this. First John chapter one, look at verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He's saying if, you, if you're claiming that you walk with God, but you're walking in darkness, there's, there's areas of your life where you're coddling sin. He said that it's not true. He's not talking about someone who is struggling and going for help. He's talking about someone that has covered their sin. I had, a, I had a Bible college professor that talked about these, these verses years ago. And I remember him. He was talking about the tenses in the Greek. And he says this, this thing of walking in darkness, he said the tense of it would be, could be easily written out as a line. It's an ongoing pattern of behavior. Later on he says if you say you're without sin, you're a liar and the truth is not within you. He says that the tense of that would be a dot on a piece of paper. It's a one-time event. And then he asked this insightful question. How many one-time events, how many dots make a line? He said, I don't know, and I don't want to know. <laughs> but we don't coddle the sin in our life. We have to face it. And then he gives us the way in which we do that. If we say we have fellowship with him, well, we walk in darkness, we lie and do not... Practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, three steps, very clear. Walk in the light. That's where we get this transparency, this authenticity. We're we're in the light. There's nothing hidden. You're not hiding your sin. You're not pretending you have it all together. You don't put your plastic Jesus face on when you walk into church and act like you didn't have the argument with your family on the way over. You're honest. He says, then that, intima- that, that transparency will breed fellowship or intimacy. Transparency leads to intimacy. You have fellowship one with another. And that is the context in which we deal with our stuff. I was thinking about it all, all over this morning when Ben quoted out that passage in Hebrews chapter 12 where he says, you have come to Mount Zion. And the author's talking about what you could frame as, in this way, your corporate relationship with God. In American Western Christianity, we often ask about our personal relationship with God. How is your personal relationship? Well, we need to know, how is your corporate relationship with God? Because your corporate relationship with God is essential to you getting delivered and growing. Alone, at best, you will be immature and ineffective. You will remain stuck where you're at. It's going to take the body of Christ to call out what's in you out of you, both good and bad. And you need the bad out and you need the good to come to the forefront. So we need a corporate relationship with God. So there's another troubling theological trend, which is not new, but it's gained a lot of traction because of social media in this day, is why do I need to go to church? Especially you can just log in and hear the greatest preachers in the world by the touch of a button. So we have these virtual churches. The problem is you can't do relationship that way. You've got to have face-to-face. Your fellowship can't be via Instagram. Where you polish up your photos so you look good. That's right. We need to have real relationships. We need to have a corporate relationship with God where we're not only relating with Him, we're relating with one another. And it's in the context of those relationships that I am really able to deal with my stuff. And James or John says this if you walk in the light, you're transparent, you'll have fellowship, you have intimacy. AND THEN THE BLOOD OF JESUS WILL CLEANSE YOU FROM ALL UNRIGHTEOUSNESS. HE'S TALKING ABOUT A STEP BEYOND FORGIVENESS. HE'S TALKING ABOUT FREEDOM, MATURITY, GROWTH. THE, the PATTERNS OF THE PAST BEGIN TO FALL OFF. BECAUSE you can't, IF YOU ARE FELLOWSHIPPING WITH other believers in the presence of God, gathering week after week, doing life together, you cannot, if they're the right kind of believers who be- are rooted in the Word, you cannot continue to live that old way. There becomes a positive peer pressure that brings those things to the surface, and you have resolution. So we need to have those relationships, and that's where we come up against this diabolical strategy of the enemy called shame. Shame is one of the primary strategies of the enemy to keep you stuck. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Really, we're going to go back to the last verse of chapter 2. Listen to what he says here. Look at chapter 2. Well, let's go to verse 24 of chapter 2, the last two verses. This is where he, God formed, he takes Eve out of Adam's side, forms it into something he's attracted to, brings it back to him and says, now this thing I took out of you, now I want you to become one with it. And Adam had to be thinking, well, I thought I already was, and then you took her out of me and gave her her own opinions, and now you want me to make you know, be one with her again? And complicated things, because what God was after was unity through mutual sacrifice. Adam was already one with Eve before God separated him, but now God did it in a way that's going to make it much more complex. And every husband said, amen. (laughs) Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There we have it. That's the goal. Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked, or if you're from Missouri, naked, and were not ashamed. Genesis three. At, Kathy and I were listening to Joyce Myers the other day, and that's how she said necking. Not that what well, she's because she lives from Southern Missouri. So uh, Genesis three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. Stop there. When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, he does a play on words that if you don't if you don't read it in the Hebrews. In the Hebrew language, you're gonna, you're gonna miss what he's saying here. When he said naked or naked, the Greek or the Hebrew word rather was Erom, A-R-O-M in the Hebrew. The transliteration, A-R-O-M. But then he, the very next verse, and we didn't have the chapter breaks when Moses wrote this, it says, but the servant was more, the serpent was more crafty, and the word crafty is erum, a r u m. And he's, he's playing off these two concepts, that Adam and Eve were naked and they weren't ashamed. They weren't, there was nothing hidden. They weren't, there was no, uh, there's nothing, you know, they're there, they're, they're out there. They're a roam. They're naked. And they felt no shame. But the serpent was crafty. He was Arum. The, there was an underhanded, uh, the, the hidden motives, the, the manipulation that was going on. And it ensued in this next passage here. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say to you, shall you, not, shall not, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. And then she adds, it's interesting how our religious minds will add to the command. Now, I'm not saying it would have been wise to go up there and kind of polish the fruit and not eat it. I'm not saying that. But she said, God said, neither shall you tuss, touch it lest you die. And the Lord had never told them that. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So he was questioning God's motives. He was causing her to you know, uh, question God the, the reason God said it. And then, so the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and the tree would be desired to make one wise. And she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. That's a, another sermon for another day. And he ate. Then the eyes were op- of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And we've been doing that ever since, guys. (laughs) The woman that you gave me, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree I ate and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And we, we know what goes on here. So we have this picture of the fall. And in the fall was the two lies upon which all of sin is based because our sinful behavior is rooted in sinful believing. You don't just randomly behave. You adopt a worldview. There are beliefs that determine your behavior. And so transformation is not a matter of white-knuckling and trying to change our behavior from the externals I mean, that's good. Stop doing it. I'm not saying until you change your mind, just continue to sin. No. There's consequences to that. But I'm telling you, if you really want longevity, if you really want to be delivered, you've got to go beyond the behavior and get down to the beliefs. And what are the lies that I believe? You need to deal with it at that level. And so we have these twofold lies, and it was a lie about God and a lie about themselves. We've talked about that before. It was a rejection of who God is and a rejection of themselves. Now, this lie about who God is is something every one of us continue to struggle with. Because every time we get ourselves in a pickle, there's that question, can I really trust God with my life? And that is the root of faith. But that's for, we've talked about that before, that's for another time. The other lie, the more subtle one, that secondary lie upon which the fall is based was a lie about Adam and Eve themselves. They not only rejected God, they rejected themselves. And in rejecting themselves, they were filled with shame. I find it fascinating that when God came through the the forest, the jungle, whatever it was, they could hear him. Can you imagine and this was normal for I don't know what that looked like, but at that time of day, it's like, hey, God's coming to hang out with us again. And they could hear him come, coming through the trees. I don't know what form he was coming in, but what an amazing thing. But rather than looking forward to this sweet fellowship they were enjoying, this time they hid and God began to call out to them, Adam, Adam, where are you? I can't read this passage without thinking of that song from the 70s by, uh, oh, he's the guy that wrote He's Alive. Uh, what's that? Don Francisco. Don Francisco. Anybody remember that song, Adam, Adam, Where Are You? Oh, my goodness. It, it, I mean, it's pretty dated in its, it's uh, style, but what a, what a poetic song where God is crying out, Adam, Adam. He talks. It has this happy little tune where God created Adam and Eve in paradise and and gave them free reign. And the only limitation was not to eat of this fruit. And Adam and Eve fell to that temptation and ate of it. And God came into the garden, and he's crying out, Adam, Adam, where are you? The word Adam means man. And so the next verse talks about God is still crying out, Adam, Adam, where are you? And he says when... God is crying out, well, man has his fingers in his ears. And God's crying out, where are you? Where are you? God's longing to be with us, to spend time with us. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that looked forward to that time in the evening when God would come for the visit. God was the one that would come again and again. And he lost that fellowship. And so he's crying out to Adam, and of course we know God knew where he was. God never asks you a question for his own information. When God asks you a question, you need to realize it's about it's time for revelation. He's a good counselor and he's going to ask the right questions so that you can realize some things that he already knows. And Adam and Eve said we were hiding because we were naked. But we know in just a few verses earlier, it says that they made for themselves loincloths. They weren't physically naked. They were covered. But something had been laid bare in their soul that mere clothing could not cover. There was something in them that felt like they had to hide from God. And that thing was, can be summed up in the, the, the term, shame, shame. Shame is a diabolical strategy from the enemy that causes you to reject yourself and therefore hide yourself from others. Hide yourself from the most important people in your life. Shame and guilt are not the same thing. Guilt is legitimate. Shame is illegitimate. Guilt is feeling bad about something you did. Now, not all guilt is legitimate. You might have some illegitimate guilt. You may misinterpret things. The enemy may condemn you, and you take responsibility for things that you didn't do. My daughter Elise is so sweet. Uh, She's always, I'll say, I'll say, oh, this, and she'll say, oh, I'm sorry. I'll say, Elise, it wasn't your fault. Don't apologize for the weather. (laughs) I had a friend, he'd say, I'd say, what's a nice day? He'd say, thank you. Wow. (laughs) Talk about a Messiah complex, you know? (laughs) We can't take credit for everything, can't take resp- you know, blame for everything. So there is a such thing as illegitimate guilt, but shame is not like guilt. Guilt is feeling bad about something over over which you did, something, some behavior, something you did. Shame is feeling bad about what you are. Shame is an identity issue. It's connected to your identity. It's how you perceive yourself. And shame will always cause you to hide. Now, it's interesting because... We're, we're talking in theological contexts. We're even, we even get into psychological contexts when we talk about this, but when you begin to study grief cycles when people lose a loved one, there, there was a, a lady that uh, many of you have heard of the grief cycle, where this came from, this, this pattern that th- she began to discern and began to track in people's lives. She was a nurse in a cancer ward, and she began to watch people. She, she began to build relationships with these families, and she would watch them go through the grief cycle before. Before and after the death of their loved one. And she began to make notes and she began to recognize that there is a discernible cycle to grief. It would often start with denial, where they'd say, We don't have a problem. They would, you know, mind over matter. We're just going to ignore this thing. And then it would get into bargaining God, if you do this, we'll do this. If you, you deliver my loved one, I'll, I'll become a missionary. And I'll you, know, I'll, you know, fill in the blanks. You'll do whatever. I'll go live in a grass hut. then it comes it gets into anger we get ticked off and then it gets into depression and depression is simply worn out anger and let me just point out that anger really once you cross the line of anger at least you're dealing with reality it's a reality that stinks it's not something you would choose and that's why you're ticked off But you're frustrated and and you're you're seeing this situation that you don't want. But your mind is beginning to process this thing. And then there comes a point of depression. That's worn out anger. I still wouldn't wouldn't choose it, but I'm just too tired to be punching the wall anymore, figuratively or literally. And so I'm just worn out. And then there comes the, the stage of acceptance of reality where you've processed this grief and you can move on with life. And those that have studied this and many of you that have been through it recognize that you can jump back and forth uh, between stages of grief. I remember when my little, when our son died, our our four-year-old son, we lost our son probably, what, it's 23 years ago now. And uh, when he passed away. Man, we went through all those cycles. I remember when we were in the hospital with him and, and uh, when he had, he had just passed and we were holding his body and I, Kathy kept looking at me and she said, Dave, am I dreaming? It was like we were in shock. It still seems real surreal. It's like I wasn't, I wasn't really there. It seems like it was something I watched from the outside because our, our, our minds just couldn't absorb it. It was like, There were two tracks in my life. There was this track, and many of you that have lost loved ones know exactly what I'm talking about. This one track is, I'm a dad with a little boy named Alex, and that's been my reality for four years, and in a split second... I'm now a dad that no longer has a little boy named Alex. And the ramifications of that, jumping that track, there was so much in that, the tentacles of that relationship touched everything about me. And I couldn't compute. I couldn't, I couldn't adjust my reality. There were too many things to calculate, too many things to be affected that I couldn't just jump this new reality and suddenly just cope with it. It's going to take time for me to get on this new track. And at first, I was in shock. I was just numbed. I I couldn't process it. And then there's the bargaining and you're crying out to God. And how much of that was faith and how much of that was bargaining? I don't know. I just know it was my way of coping with the pain. And then over time, there's this anger that sets in, this frustration like, God, why? And then this depression. But again, understand that the anger and the depression really is... YOU BEGINNING TO COPE WITH THE NEW REALITY. YOU'VE NOW SWITCHED TRACKS, AND IT'S NOT THE TRACK YOU WOULD'VE CHOSEN, BUT AT LEAST you're, li- YOU'RE DEALING WITH REALITY. YOU'RE NOT TRYING TO MEDICATE IT. YOU'RE NOT TRYING TO AVOID REALITY. And I remember during that time, there's, you know, you'd go to, I remember the, the day he passed, we're, we're driving home from the hospital and, and looking out the window and people, you know, laughing and talking or the next few days or the day of his funeral and people are just talking and laughing and I'm like, how can, how can they do that? How, how can they be happy? It seemed like a violation. I wasn't mad at people, but it just seemed like they were living in a totally different world than I was and they were. And I had to, I had to jump those tracks and then, Then when when things began to settle down, then I got back to work and doing everyday life, and I would forget about it, and I would see something, and all of a sudden it would trigger, oh, yeah, Alex is gone, and all of a sudden I'd be on that depression. It was like I was jumping between the tracks for months until finally I've been living on these new tracks for years, and I remember my little boy, but he's been gone much longer than we had him. And so this is my reality. And I'm okay with it. And every now and then there'll be a pang of guilt, some little thing. But the fact is I know I'm going to see him again. And I'm going to, I know that he's met many of the people from our own congregation that have passed over the few years. I believe God, there's times where that he's in the great cloud of witnesses. He watches in on the service. I'm okay with that. But it took time. I had to face that. I remember during that season I ended up I was working at Teen Challenge, and there were people from the community in Colfax that would come in, and, and for counseling, and there was a, a family that had lost a child the same time we had lost ours, and, and uh, their, their marriage was on the rocks, just uh, all kinds of things were going wrong. and so they came in for counseling, and as we talked, uh, we started to get into some things and found out that the man was in a deep depression, was on all kinds of medication and. And, uh, you know, he was trying to cope with this, and they're trying to deal with their marriage issues. And then as we delved into it, the guy began to talk about, the, the wife brought up that they had lost a child. And I began to ask him about that, and he did not want to go there. Man, it was, this was off limits. We're not going to talk about this. And as he began to ask him, when he got on medication, it was right after the death of his child. But in his mind, there was no connection between the two. I struggle with depression. That, that death is something different, and that's over here, and I'm not going to deal with that. I don't want to talk about that. And whether he realized it or not, it was affecting his relationship. Because in reality, he was medicating his pain rather than facing it. Man, an- anybody in this room would have compassion for this poor guy. The problem is, he wasn't resolving the issue. It was just prolonging the agony. And that's why we were talking last week that in order to really be free, you put it this way if you want to be holy, you've got to get whole. You've got to have wholeness for holiness. Because in the areas you're not whole, the areas where you still have unresolved pain in your life, you have made yourself extremely vulnerable to the enemy because all he has to do is trigger that grief to press on that thing, to begin to provoke that pain to the surface. And if you haven't learned healthy ways of dealing with it, what he does is he triggers your addictions. All of a sudden, you you find yourself being, you're, you're living on the edge of temptation all the time because you've never really learned to resolve the pain, it's still raw. That's why it's essential when people go through crisis in their life, they need us as the body of Christ to come around them more than ever. They need someone to say, hey, how are you doing? You know, before Kathy and I lost our son, when people would pass away, I would avoid the family. I know, great pastoral methods, right? Right. When I was 21 years old, I was in Bible school, went home to Atumwa for the summer, and uh, I got there, and they hired me to be the youth pastor, and then the pastor quit. So now here I am, I'm 21 years old, pastor in a church of about 250 people, and uh, I'm like, <laughs> I am in over my head, okay? And about two weeks into it, this precious little old gentleman by the name of Clyde, who would drop by the church on his bike all the time, I get a phone call, his, he went into the, rest, into the bathroom of their house and found his wife gone, she's dead. And I didn't know what to do. And thank God we had some elders in the church that were much more mature than I that gathered around him and walked him through it and, and the, the former pastor came back because he had had a relationship with them for years and he did the funeral. And I just remember avoiding people because I thought I don't want to trigger their grief. I remember when, when our son passed, we were at the funeral home, and we're standing there, and a good friend of ours, Rudy Marino, Rudy comes in, and Rudy, Rudy is an old gangster, okay? Rudy spent almost as much time in prison as I had alive when I was working at Teen Challenge. That he got gloriously saved, but he was pretty rough around the edges. And Rudy says in his thick Latino accent, he says, Dave, he said, I, I apologize. I've been avoiding you. He said, because I, I just don't know what to say. Man, that meant so much to me for him just to be honest like that. And I I learned that in that time, you know what I I needed to hear from people? I didn't need to hear from people, it's going to be okay, because it wasn't okay right then. I didn't want it to be okay. I missed my little boy. But for them to just say, I'm so sorry, just to know that they felt my pain because of their relationship with me, that's all I needed. That's why Paul says, weep with those who weep and laugh with those who laugh. You know, both of those are part of grief. That's right. You sit there and talk about the crazy things that your deceased loved one did, the funny things. i got to tell you a story about my little boy, okay? This is therapeutic. One time, he, he spent a lot of time in the hospital, and uh, so they would wait on He was a cute little fella and very articulate. He had a huge vocabulary for his age. And uh, so the, the nurses would wait on him. They'd really, really dote on him. Well. He'd get real spoiled there, and then he'd get cantankerous with us, you know. Like, you know, aren't you going to wait on me hand and foot like that? And so he's laying in his hospital bed, and he had a wheelchair. He couldn't walk, so he was like, you know, a prisoner to that, that hospital room. And uh, the nurses were in there doting on him, and they left. And he, he made some smart-aleck comment to me about something, and I said, no, stop it, that attitude. And he pops off again, you know. I, to life for me, I don't remember what it was, but he just... I mean, belligerent little, you know. And uh, so I stood up to come over to him uh, from across the room, and he leans his head towards the door, and he starts yelling at the nurse, Hey, nurse, he's hurting me! He's hurting me! (laughs) I was like 20 feet from the kid, man. That was part of my grief, laughing about those little things he would do. Little kid, you believe that? But all of that, we need, we, people need people to share their pain and to walk with them so that as they're learning to deal with their pain, they have people that are coming alongside them and feeling it with them. That demands two things. That demands empathy from the rest of us, but it demands honesty from them. They've got to be transparent about what they're dealing with. And when we have shame in our life, it keeps us from being honest. It causes us to cover up who we really are. We get the fig leaves on. But I'm telling you, it will not solve. You'll still be mecked. Okay? (laughs) That's not going to resolve it. We have got to deal with this stuff. We've got to be open and honest. And only in the context of real relationship can we begin to deal with these besetting sins, this garbage in our life, so that we can move from forgiveness to freedom and really become the transformed people God's called us to. That demands not only a personal relationship with Jesus, it demands a corporate relationship with Jesus. And the shame barrier is one of the enemy's primary strategies to keep you from moving into that. I remember the struggle I had with shame in regards to my son, just struggling with his death. And there were s- several key things that I had to, I, I, was, I had to speak out with someone, and, and it was like I got stuck in grief, and there was like this backlog, and it was just building up, building up, building up, and I wasn't talking about it, and things were getting worse, and I remember going into my boss's office, and one day he said, how are you doing? And I just began to talk about, my innermost feelings about my guilt over—I I, remember—I didn't buy a really nice casket for my son. Somebody came to me and said, "I want to." I worked at Teen Challenge. It was—you know—we got—we got paid nickels and dimes back then, and—and uh, and they said, we, "We will pay you. Do whatever you want. One of our board members. You do whatever you want. Any kind of funeral. We'll pay for the whole thing." Very gracious. It could have been tens of thousands of dollars, but I just felt like no. I'm not going to try to put on, it, just for me personally. I mean, it, people do what they want. That's fine. You just need to follow your own heart. But I just didn't want to do that. And all of a sudden, the next morning, I was just struggling with guilt over that feeling. What kind of father are you? I mean, it was like this demonic oppression. I remember looking, going and talking to Quimby Collier and just crying and just getting that off my chest, and the enemy was leveraging that in my life. Those kind of things, if we don't talk with someone about those, what happens is it's like a stick in the spokes. Grief is a cycle that must spin itself out. You've got to feel it to heal it. You've got to process it. You've got to talk that stuff out. And if you don't, it's like putting a stick in the spokes that will keep the tension there and it will build. And eventually that stuff is going to manifest in some unhealthy way if you don't deal with it in a healthy way. And the stick is shame. Shame. I remember a few months after my son died, we got a letter, a uh, packet in the mail from one of the doctors. I don't even know why they sent it, but it was a doctor talking about how, and, and in that says the parents were uncooperative. He, they wouldn't let me do X, a number, uh, such and such surgery. I remember reading that and just this wave of condom, it was overwhelming. I took that, and stuck it in my briefcase and carried it in there two years. I couldn't read it. It was too much. What I had forgotten is we had a different doctor do that surgery. But in that moment I couldn't even compute it because all I knew is my boy was gone, and this doctor was saying that the parents were uncooperative and he needed to do a surgery. Tell him the enemy is such a punk. He is ruthless and he will he will leverage anything in your life. And if we don't talk about it, if we don't get around someone else that can call us back into reality. Then we will find ourselves doing crazy things to avoid that pain momentarily. You need a corporate relationship with God, and you've got to face shame to get there. You've got to. You, Shame is self-rejection. It's this these these doubts that we have about ourselves, this condemnation that we have against ourselves that we I, I can't share it because people are going to reject me. I can't I can't share this with anybody. And what it does is it keeps us in hiding, keeps us in those vicious cycles. And you've got to find someone and I'm telling you every one of us have those people in our life. There are people in this room that you can trust with your deepest darkest secrets. And if you, I read something on Facebook yesterday. They, they attributed it to Francis Frangipan. I thought that was a brilliant comment. Get my theology from Facebook. <laughs> he said, the enemy feeds on the issues you keep from God. I need to start having a hand mic. I could just <laughs> take my lapel off. It's Francis Frangipan. But he does. He he will blackmail you with the things that you don't share. So what you need to do is you need to be just really honest. So when people say, I heard, you say, well, you haven't heard the worst of it. (laughs) Let me fill in the backstory, (laughs) Because that's true freedom. When you can just be honest. But that only comes about when you come into a place where you accept God's estimation of you. Where you're not defining yourself by your past. You truly are born again. I remember when I first got saved, went through Teen Challenge, got out of Teen Challenge. I was in a little Bible institute. And the mentor, the guy that that ran the school, he came to me one day and because he, he knew my testimony, he said, he said, because my dad had gotten out of the ministry for a season because of my brother and I's drug use. And he said, Dave, don't you feel guilty about your dad your dad leaving ministry because of your behavior? I mean, don't you struggle with condemnation? And I'm th- thinking, thanks, not up until now I didn't, you know. <laughs> kinda kind of felt forgiven until I talked to you, sir. You know. And I told him, no. I, I don't feel, I don't feel condemned because it's a reality to me that I am not that person. I am not the person who did the. I was born again. That person was crucified with Christ. I was nailed to a tree 2,000 years ago. That's why Paul says in Galatians 6, 14, God forbid that I should glory in anything save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, by which the world was crucified to me and I was crucified to the world. Paul was saying this, my one boast is that Jesus did the world a favor by taking me out. He solved the problem of David Olson walking the earth. He killed me. He nailed me to the tree with himself. And when we really believe that, we can begin to come out from underneath that shame and begin to then, then the things we were once ashamed of become weaponry in our hands. We can use it to get vengeance on the enemy. We begin to share that with others. It becomes an opportunity for us to minister to other people. We can say, "Hey, if God can use me, I'm such. I've, I've been such a mess. Look at what God. Look at what God delivered me of." And, and it becomes weapons of warfare. Amen. But you've got to grasp your new creation that your identity is you are forgiven and you're born again. And even the things you struggle with after you're saved, you've got to find people where you can begin to vent those hidden fears, those self-doubt, those things, because those are the very things that will drive you to medicate yourself into sin again. That's right. And we've got to get honest. Amen? All right, let's go ahead and stand this morning. I want to pray over you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's go ahead and lift our hands to the Lord. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your glorious provision of new life. Father, I'm asking you that you would deliver us, Lord, of shallow understanding of what you did at Calvary. Help us to grasp the immensity, the depth, the magnitude of the new birth. It's not some poetic thing. It's not some poetic way to describe a change of mind. It is a transformation of our very nature that we are new creations, that we have a new nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. Lord, I thank you. Hallelujah. And Lord, I pray right now for everyone in this room, Lord, those that are struggling with secrets that the enemy is leveraged in blackmail, that they live in fear lest it come out. Lord, I'm asking God that they would hear the freedom, the call to freedom. Lord, that we would come out of the bushes, that we would be naked and unashamed, figuratively, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com give.